welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Ahir Shah. Through the dissolution of empires and the successes of some secessionist movements, the number of states in the world has shot from around 50 in the 19th century to almost 200 in the present day. But how should the aspiring secessionist or the person dreaming of becoming the parent of a new nation actually go about it? Joining me to discuss this is Matt Kvortrup, Professor of Political Science at Coventry University and the author of the new book, I Want to Break Free, A Practical Guide to Making a New Country. Matt, welcome to The Bunker. Thank you. It's a great honour. What brought you to tell this story in the first place? What is your practical experience of uh, helping found new states? Uh, Well, my practical experience is that when I was a graduate student in the last, uh, well, millennium rather, I was writing a doctoral thesis about referendums on independence. At that time, it was in the 1990s, several places in the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe were setting up shop, basically. Some of them wanted advice on how to win a referendum and all of that. So I sort of made it, if you like, a little bit my business to tell them what to do and what not to do and how to do it and how not to do it. Uh, so I became sort of practically involved and uh, in in organizing referendums. And with that sort of expertise, people would then come to me from, from various places, the US State Department or the democracy movement in Hong Kong and so on. So I've traveled pretty much from South Sudan to Scotland, advising people on how to create new states or occasionally being a hired gun, how to avoid it. Right. So we've established that you are indeed the man to ask uh, on this topic. So In the first stages of creating a nascent new country, I guess the first thing that one must do is sort of create the people and tell the story of the people, right? I think that it's a, you can feel like the nation's just something that's been there forever, but there is an act of creation involved in this. I wonder if you could talk a bit more about how to do that. Yes, and there's a famous quote by an Italian when they created Italy, which is only in 1870, by the way, uh, who said, we have created Italy, now we have to create the Italians. The Italians were created as an entity, as a feeling, way before there was a, a country called Italy. So what the first thing you really need to do is you need to have something to rally around. You need to have not only sort of the myths and the stories and oh, how you've been cheated in the past, but also a, a an element of popular culture. Now, most of us would probably not see uh, Verdi's operas as popular culture, but in the uh, 19th century, they were seen as that. And uh, Giuseppe Verdi, who we know back then, was really just a propagandist. Many of his ideas were were the ones that the Italians could rally around. They could sing his songs. They could feel that they'd been terribly treated by the Austrians or or the popes and so on. He created this sort of national movement. Another thing, when when Poland first sort of thought about becoming a state, they they actually hired the philosopher Rousseau, who then wrote a, a report about it. And he says the important thing you need to do is you need to use sports. And it's pretty impressive that they write that in 1771. And uh, and he has a famous line in that book where he says there wouldn't be any Spain wouldn't exist without bullfighting. Uh, so you have to have things that really you know, appeal to people and appeal to their emotions. And then there will be hardship that would lead to that. So it's interesting uh, in, in, in Britain, we, we don't have a movement for, uh, for, the independent, for an independent Yorkshire. I mean, there might be a few people who think about that and the independent Lancashire. And, and people in those parts of, of the UK have been um, 
have, have suffered just as much as the Scots claim to be suffering from, from conservative governments, for example. But the, what has happened in Scotland is in Scotland, they have sort of made the most out of Scotland being once a, king, a kingdom. Um, and Cumbria was a kingdom back in the day as well, but they haven't had to sort of like campaign for an independent Cumbria yet. Is that because the story of England as a unitary thing has existed for so many centuries and become so ingrained? Yes, it has. But you, if, if you were to, I mean, just for the sake of the argument, if you were from Cumbria, then you'd start by, by looking at the kings back in the day. You would have heroes. You find examples of atrocities committed against the Cumbrians. You start with that. Then you'd probably find a couple of pop groups and, uh, and maybe football teams that you can rally around. And then, then you're off, basically. Okay, so say that we're going to take Cumbria then. Uh, we have got a Cumbrian football team to try and get into the World Cup. We've got our Cumbrian versions of Verdi, or I guess now something like BTS. We're going to go to the next uh, step then, which in the modern world is increasingly to secede via the method of referendum. As someone who in 2016 still feels very much like they were on the losing side of a referendum that has changed a lot. Winning referendums is very important. How do you win them? The best way to win a referendum is always by fear. In fact, everything is won by fear in politics. And that's the thing that David Cameron didn't read the script and and Michael Gove and Boris did. And that was also the script that wasn't read by the Scottish government. And I think at the moment it's not being read by the Scottish government because you don't get independence. You don't win a referendum by saying how uh, you're going to have a different currency and how you're going to balance the books because people just don't read spreadsheets. People, spreadsheets don't really inspire you. Spreadsheets, neither do they horrify you and give you nightmares in the middle of the night economics is just not set up for that. So you campaign in poetry and you govern in prose, is how it's been said once. And referendums are ultimate campaigns. It's not about individuals. You can't sort of say that a particular issue is it has, has got bad morals and so on. So referendums are won by, by appealing to the, the heartstrings. Uh, and that's how you win a referendum on independence. Uh, when way back in time, uh, about a hundred years ago, when Norway became an independent country, they were campaigning about all the terrible things that the Swedes would do to them. And when I was talking to a Norwegian yesterday, and I mentioned I'd spent some time in Sweden, uh, she said, that's horrible. Why would you spend time in a country like that? And I said, well, for goodness sake, Sweden is relatively harmless. And she said, yeah, well, in Norway, we grow up thinking about how awful they are. So even 117 years after Norwegian independence, they still have that. So to win an independence referendum, you need to have, uh, you need to appeal to the heartstrings, you need to have a positive vision of how to frankly make your country great again. And then you need to have a vision of how all sorts of terrible things are going to happen, unless you vote for independence. So let's say we've then successfully run Project Fear to secure the secession of this territory, then we get to the issue of legal recognition. And I guess the the main thing here is in the eyes of the UN. How basically difficult is that? Because a lot of the time it does feel like something like international law ends up just being whatever the big boys say it is. Yes, and I think in the book I, uh, I refer to a book that's called Sovereignty, and, and the subtitle is Organized Hypocrisy. And organized hypocrisy is is often what you see in these particular cases. And, and, and what is not helpful about the international law of secession, 
there are basically two ways of doing it. Uh, there is the classical way, and then there is the sort of the more modern way, which is through the UN. If we take the UN route first, you have to uh, make an application to the UN General Assembly, and if two thirds of the members uh, like you, then it's processed onto the to the UN Security Council, and you have to get them on board. That's sort of in in the world of high theory. Now, in most cases, you don't get that many aboard. A, a and, and if one country is being recognized by France, Britain, and America, then the Chinese and the Russians are just going to vote no, because that's the, the nature of the game. But you can you can very easily become a state, and this is the, the quite important thing. What matters is not that you get the letter from all these places saying we formally recognize you or we don't recognize you. What is most important is that you are a de facto state when you have a defined territory, a defined population, and you have control over that defined territory. So if uh, we take the example of Cumbria, then we have a, a pretty defined geographic region called Cumbria. We have a fairly defined group of people who live there, who would be the Cumbrians. And then the tricky matter is if they're in control over the territory. Um, and in control over the territory basically means that if you if you have an accident there, then the the, the Cumbrians, the would-be Cumbrian state, will be able to run your claims when you when you have an insurance claim and do all the sort of practical little things that go with being a state. A lot of states in the Middle East don't recognize Israel, but they would be happily pro, uh, processed with a claim if somebody, you know, one of their citizens were to, to fall over in the streets of Tel Aviv or, or something like that. So if you're actually doing the tasks that a state normally would do, have a budget, collect taxes and so on, then you are, uh, for all practical purposes, a state. Vladimir Putin, who uh, is somebody that I personally don't like, has set up a number of states. Uh, there's South Ossetia and Transnistria and uh, Abkhazia. We well, probably haven't heard of most of these. They are part of Moldova and part of Georgia, uh, where he has then set up a state. And he then claims that they should be recognized in international law. Until recently, uh, Donbass and Luhansk in eastern Ukraine were also recognized only by Russia. Russia as, uh, as states, and then he just changed his mind and thought they should be integrated into Russia, which is um, not a high level of consistency, but never mind. So why is it that Luhansk and Donbass are not uh, states? I mean, they have a defined territory, well, probably not actually even, but just for the sake of the argument, say that Luhansk or South Ossetia have a defined territory, a defined population. The thing that they don't have is they don't have their own control over the territory. They only have control over the territory because uh, the Russians are basically there to supply them with arms. So if you want to set up your independent state and you just have the Russian army in to you know, invade and just to, to make it happen, that is not going to give you a state. Uh, what is going to give you a state is when you can actually run the territory, when you have this defined population, defined territory, and you're able to run it on your own. In Kosovo, uh, which some countries have not recognized, Spain has still not recognized Kosovo because they, they don't want to create a precedent. But other countries like America, like Britain, like Italy, like France have recognized Kosovo because this is an area which actually functions as a state. They collect their own taxes, they have their own police force, they have independent courts that, uh, that adjudicate in criminal matters. When you have those established and they work, then you have a state. 
So we've got our de facto, and as you say, in many cases, de jure state in existence. We now, as most states do, we want a codified constitution uh, then. And that has to be drafted. And there are all sorts of ways to draft it, but some have been more and less effective than others. I think most recently we've had the international example of Chile, where the people voted that they did want a new constitution and then a new constitution was drafted and then they voted against the constitution that was on offer there. So how does one best secure the new constitution? Yes, I mean, a lot of this will sound sort of very Machiavellian. In some ways it is, because when you're advising people on how to set up a new state, you tell them how they want to be viewed and then you tell them what they actually should do. Now, you want to have a constitution that look as if you are listening to the people all the time. And, and sometimes you do that in an effective way. You, you have an open forum, you have a bit of a roadshow, you're traveling around to get input from people. And the problem with that is that there's a lot of input from a lot of people who may not necessarily think about this as being a working practical document. So a constitution of a country should be almost like the a, a constitution for a uh, for a bowling club or something like that. It is there to be very practical and deal with the very practical issues. It's a good idea to sort of involve the people at various stages, but what they did in Chile was that they basically involved them too much and then they elect an assembly with, with very different opinions and different shades of opinion and, and then it becomes sort of unwieldy and it becomes just a little bit of a mess. I think they did in Brazil when they drafted their constitution. I think they ended up with a document that was 42,000 words long and that is just too long for a constitution. So a constitution you should aim to find a way in which you can get a simple, preferably slightly poetic statement, or certainly have a, a, a preamble to the constitution, a couple of quotable lines, then you, uh, you want to draft it in a way where you include people, uh, but you don't want to have too much sort of consultation in the earliest, in, in well, certainly in the later stages, you might want to, to uh, and this is one of the sort of tricky bits, because you want to be seen as involving all the people all the time. Currently, I'm involved in drafting a preliminary constitution for Bougainville. Bougainville is part of Papua New Guinea. They voted a couple of years ago 90% for secession. There was a UN uh, monitored referendum, and the Papuans uh, are not happy to see them go. So in drafting the constitution, the Bougainvillians will want to look very democratic. They want to look very inclusive. They have a number of roadshows where they give input to people, but they also very tightly control the type of things that can be debated because they want to have an effective state once they get up and running. So this is also the whole process of, 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 uh, of writing the constitution is also an exercise in state building. It's not just an exercise in drawing up a legal document, but the main thing is that it's another way of what people in the political consulting business call solidifying your base. It's a thing to rally around. It's absolutely fascinating because I, given my own familial background, think about so much of this in the context of essentially the creation of India in the middle of the 20th century. Um, oh, totally. Yes, yes, the, totally. Uh, the, the sort of securing of territory, which is Sardar Patel's job in many ways, and then the creation of or the discovery of India as uh, Nehru himself wrote and all of these sort of 
road trips uh, and everything, uh, the creation of this story, this unification and getting people behind a new constitution is is exactly sort of what happened in practice there. And it's also fascinating how far you could like the original constitution of India refers to a secular socialist republic, which when you compare it to what India actually is now with Modi and the Hindutva uh, movement is yes. extraordinarily um, different. Yes, and, and it, what is interesting about this is it, nobody in India, not being an expert on that particular country, but nobody in India would dare to go against the constitution because that's sort of sacrilegious to do that. So because that is is, is almost at, at a level of a deity because the constitution is a constitution. But then you twist it around to so make it look like like that. I mean, the Turkish constitution is another example. Erdogan is everything that is not Kamalist in Turkey, yet he is still referring to the constitution and Turkey this and Turkey that. And, and his idea of Turkey, just like uh, Modi's idea of India, are very different from the original uh, story of that. And of course, you, you have the same in America. Uh, there is an, a majority of Americans at some stage believed that from each according to his ability to each according to his needs, and, uh, and most Republicans believed that this line about from each according to his ability to each according to his need uh, was in the Constitution. As it happens, it is a phrase that was first written by Karl Marx. Let's say that we've done all of this. The, the people and the story have been created and told, a referendum's been won, recognition been sought or attained, and we've got this Constitution in place. We now come to the matter of the bill. In the contemporary world, if you're seceding, uh, you're going to be seceding from another state. Now, I had previously thought before reading your book that this meant things like taking on a share of the national debt or having a divorce bill of some uh, description. And you write about actually even a conversation that you've had with Nicola Sturgeon about this not being the case. Yes. And uh, and this is one of the things that I probably, in, in, I, I suppose I should tell the story of the book. I gave a talk in Glasgow about this issue and uh, and I outlined the international practice in these matters and there was a supposed to be a sort of like a divorce settlement treaty in international law that said that once you split up you then have to uh, divide the debt as well as you divide the the property so if you are splitting up then you both have to pay your share of the mortgage for example now what is interesting uh, and we often talk about political divorce settlement so that's what i was sort of talking about but that's where the analogy sort of breaks down because the idea was to come up with international political divorce settlements but that treaty was never ratified by enough countries and then it just basically withered away and it doesn't exist. So in practical purposes, when you become an independent state, you don't have to pay the debt of the country that you're leaving. Now, some countries have decided to do that, notwithstanding that they don't have to. For example, when Ireland left Britain, Ireland sent a pound one single pound. I know in 1922, a pound was worth a bit more than it is now. Or, you know, it was you could get a bit more for a pound than you can now. But it still was not in any way enough to pay for the debt. And the Irish basically thought, well, we've had to send soldiers to the First World War. And why would we pay the debt that the British have uh, accumulated as a result of, of, of oppressing us? So the Irish, um, just to make a mockery of it, sent this famous pound to the British. 
In the case of Scotland, it was when George Osborne was Chancellor of the Exchequer. What I said in my talk was that Britain, or that Scotland could become independent, they could send the bill to George Osborne, and Nicola Sturgeon found that rather amusing. Um, and I suppose if we were to update that uh, to now, then if Scotland were to become independent, then they can send their share of the national debt to Jeremy Hunt. At the time of recording, Jeremy Hunt, but... I think one thing to say on that, and perhaps this is a good place to close, is that a lot does depend on the relationship between the newly independent state and the country that it seceded from, right? You could have a comparatively benign situation where uh, things like the national debt aren't regarded as a problem and there is an agreement to share a currency, for example, going forward, uh, even a head of state, for example, in the case of... um, if the rest of the UK and Scotland, if Scotland were to become independent, and they said that they want to keep the monarchy for a little bit at least. But of course, historically, there have also been examples, and I think particularly about the immiseration, the total immiseration of Haiti after its independence, where the extractive practices of the former, in this case, colonial ruler continued for quite some time to devastating human cost. Yes, becoming independent is not the, um, it's not a panacea. This book is written for the people who decided they want to become independent. This is the, the story of independence, the good, the bad, and the occasionally very ugly. So you might become an independent state and you might say that I am free now and then you get in, incredibly impoverished. But at least you get impoverished in a free sort of way. Now, some people would say that's the example of Brexit. A number of other countries in Africa that are nominally uh, independent have still been, been treated rather poorly by France, uh, no matter whether you had a socialist or non-socialist or a Macronist president. France, on average, intervenes in Africa every year, and they still treat uh, part of uh, uh, Afrique, as they call it, or the French Africa, as, as if it was it's still uh, part of some sort of empire. So actually getting formal independence is not necessarily helpful if you're getting independence from a country that has been um, less than benign. But I think if we're looking at many European countries, for example, then we we think of places like Finland and Luxembourg and to a degree Norway as, as being places, and Poland certainly, as places that have been around forever. Uh, and they are comparatively young states. Uh, you would think of some of these countries as being, you know, thousands of years old. But as a general rule, most countries are, are relatively young and have been able to set up shop uh, relatively effectively. The important thing is how you break free and you, you have control over the territory, if I can sort of uh, sum it up. Uh, that control over the territory then has to be backed up by some sort of economic efficiency, which means that you have to have an effective public sector. Uh, but you can, and you you then... If you're not paying your debt, it might also then be more difficult for you to to get loans. Having said that, you are starting with a clean slate. Uh, you might have uh, have less money that you have to pay back. And I think this aspect of not having to pay for the debt of the of the country that you have just left is quite reasonable because you know they would have incurred this debt in many cases because they they wanted to to send a police force into to. Uh, to beat you up, as it were. And of course, you don't want to pay for that uh, ex post, as it were. 
what is morally right is not necessarily what is legally accurate. And uh, and sometimes you just want to play by by the book and want to make the book play in a way. Uh, the metaphor is now getting stretched here. Uh, that that works for you. I wanted originally to call this book, I like these sort of pop titles, I wanted, wanted to call it Breaking Up is Hard to Do. That's sort of a Neil Sedaka type of approach. But I ended up with a Freddie Mercury theme, which is I want to break free. I think this is more Freddie Mercury uh, than Neil Sedaka. You also have, if we are staying with that kind of metaphor, you also need to have a little bit more sort of oomph uh, and gusto, a little bit more Freddie Mercury stage presence if you want to create an independent state. You need to lead by example and you need to be able to enthuse a crowd. Mac Vautrup, thank you very much for joining me on The Bunker and I'll see you in Cumbria. I think we've got something going. I think we're going to start something. Yes, and, uh, and in 200 years' time, there'll be statues of you in Cumbria. <laughs> Matt's book is I Want to Break Free, A Practical Guide to Making a New Country. Listeners, thanks very much for joining us on The Bunker. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition. And remember, you can get every edition of the podcast early, plus merchandise and more when you support us on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. Just for listening. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ahir Shah. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer was Kasia Tomashevich. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>